Welcome to the Connecting Place podcast. Here is today's message. All right. Well, hey, welcome to Believer's Church. We're excited you're here. This is going to be a fun morning. If you're new here, my name is Joe, and I get to kind of work with all of our different teams here at BC and uh, oversee how the vision of BC happens. And so I love this church. Love you guys. I'm excited about this series called The New Black. And before we go any further, just want to remind you, give you an update. Pastor Joe and Gina, every July, uh, they like to take the first couple weeks and just vacation and unplug and just get refreshed. And uh, after that, Pastor Joe takes the next two weeks and he just studies and gets ready for the rest of the year. And uh, oftentimes he'll come out of those two weeks of study and he'll have two or three series done. And uh, God really speaks to him during this time. And uh, quite a few years back, God began to deal with my dad that he wasn't resting well enough and wasn't taking some time away. And uh, my dad just loves this church so much, he would just go and go and go. And, and God said, look, you're going to stop whether you want to or not. And you're going to stop now or later. And he said, if you want to extend your ministry by a few decades instead of getting, uh, you know, having to sit out because you're burnout, then he said, I would, I would suggest you begin to take some moments and unplug. And so he's obedient to God. Are you thankful you have a pastor that is obedient to God? Yeah, we can give it up for him. And uh, can I just ask you this favor? We said it last week, just if you could pray for him. And uh, that, that means so much just as, as his son and uh, as their son and watching what God does just through your prayers. It really lifts our family. And uh, man, they love this church. And I'm excited about uh, what's happening in the rest of the year. So thank you for your prayers. Uh, before we go any further and kind of go off to the races with this message today, I just want to put this out there that in this message, if you, maybe you're kind of new to Believer's Church or maybe you're new to God in general, man, you couldn't have picked a more perfect weekend to come and check out Believer's Church because I'm going to kind of have some fun with people who are churchy. Is that cool with you? And uh, I'm going to have some fun with the Christians in the house. It's kind of a family message, uh, but you're going to get a lot out of it, and it's going to really make a lot of sense if maybe you've been to some churches, had some bad experiences. Uh, maybe you're like, man, that's why I haven't been to churches because I've been to some churches. Then this will be a message that I think really rings true with you and uh, resonates. And so we're going to have a lot of fun. It's going to be uplifting, I promise. But I want to ask you this question. Let's start out by asking this. Have you ever felt like you were a minority in the masses? Like, here's what I mean by that. Uh, like, everyone around you looked different, talked different, acted differently. You were a minority in the masses. I remember about a year ago, I got to go to my first ever game at the shoe. Got to go see the Ohio State Buckeyes. Do I have any Bucknuts in the house? Anybody think they're going to take it all this year? No? Okay, I'm going to leave that one alone. Any, any, uh, any LeBron James people in the house? Anybody here? We can clap for LeBron James in Lord's house. I'm only going to read out of the New King James Version today, just in honor of him. I just want you to know that. But I'll tell you what, when we went to the Ohio State Buckeyes game, it was the first game of the year. Some really cool uh, people in our church, great friends, they had season tickets. They weren't able to go, and it, they were playing Buffalo. So it was the season opener. I've never been here before. I've only seen it on TV. And if you've been there in person, it is something to take in. And you walk into this massive stadium, and there's way too many people jammed into this stadium. There's about 104,000 people, and our seats were kind of perched at the very top, and you could see everything. It was this sea of scarlet and gray. And then, if you just kind of scan through the audience, you find this one itty-bitty section. It's right by the field, and everybody's dressed differently. They're wearing different colors. In fact, they're, they're not singing O-H-I-O they're, they're not doing script Ohio. There's a whole different section that speaks a whole different language. 
and they're cheering for the wrong team. It's Buffalo. You ever, you ever looked at the visiting section? In a stadium of 104,000 people, there's about 500 people dressed in blue and orange. And it was hilarious. Like, I feared for their lives, and I'm not even a Buffalo person. Like, it was dangerous for them to be in that section. You know what I'm saying? And they were a minority in the masses. And today I want to talk to you about these three guys that were a minority in the masses. Um, when, when I was growing up, I had some moments in my life where I felt that way. Uh, my mom was a bit of a health nut, and, uh, you know, it was okay. We, we survived. We, we would wake up every morning, and here was what I had to drink every morning. You ready for this? It was barley green. Has anybody ever tried barley green? It was the powdery stuff, and we'd put it in a glass of water, and you try to make it as little of water as you could so you could gulp it down really fast. You'd stir it, but it would always clump up. And I remember so many times I'd try to drink that and want to come back up on me. That's how I started my morning. Are you feeling bad for me yet? <laughs> this is your pastor, Pastor Gina and Pastor Joe. And um, so when I would go to lunch, here's what my lunch was. In a sea of French fries and Doritos, this was, this was what I brought. My mom would pack me a plain back, uh, baked potato, plain baked potato. There's nothing that you could put on it. It's wrapped in tin foil just so it felt extra special. And uh, I would pull that out. And then after that, I would pull out the sandwich that was my mom's homemade wheat bread. And here's what she felt at the time was like healthy and good for you. It was just honey and butter. So I had my honey and butter sandwich and, and my plain baked potato. That was my lunch. And I'd pull it out, and I was just ashamed. I would just not make eye contact with anyone. You know what? I, I became a thief that year. Can I tell you why? Hot lunches were $1.25 at that time. And my dad had a whole trough of quarters. And looking back, I think I owe some money to the building fund because if you've been around for a while, I think it was a building for the harvest little container. And I just lifted me a few quarters and I just throw them on the, on the counter. I just say, what can I get for $1.25? And they'd load me up with all of, the, all of the great food. And I had one friend named Joey and he felt so bad for me that he actually packed an extra bag of Doritos for me and he would sneak them to me. And, I, all my friends, though, I had so many people in the building that knew who I was that they actually ratted me out to my parents that I was eating hot lunch, so that didn't even last very long. But I was a minority in the masses. When I got a little bit older, this is just a pattern throughout my life, as you begin to see. I, I've met my wife, my beautiful wife, and as we were dating, one of the things we quickly discovered is that she was very Irish, and I was very Italian. And so she had never really eaten anything besides, like, you know, Chef Boyardee. You know, that was, like, her idea of fine dining Italian style. And uh, I had really never had, like, real mashed potatoes or anything like that. Like, that just wasn't a thing in our house. We literally eat pasta on Thanksgiving, if you want to know how Italian we are. And uh, that's just the way we roll. And so, quickly, my wife gave me this nickname, and this is the one I'd love for you to remember. Let this stick in your minds. I was the Italian stallion, so remember that. <laughs> Don't laugh at that. It's not funny. And, uh, but before I ever met her grandparents, her grandpa on her mom's side, uh, he developed this other nickname for me. This is so horrible. But he would call me the spaghetti vendor. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't be sharing this story with you. This is a little too funny to you. And uh, so I was the spaghetti vendor. And I rem I'll never forget, like, I was coming down there for the first time to, like, meet their family. We we're going to have a big family dinner. And I just was prepared for anything because I didn't know what they were going to ask me. They started asking me all these ignorant questions like, do you eat pasta every day for every meal? And, like, do you bleed spaghetti sauce? And, like, the answers to those questions are yes, but still, that's kind of ignorant. You know what I'm saying? And uh, I was a minority in the masses. I mean, like, I was pasta and meatballs in a sea of meat and potatoes. That was my story. And today, I want to talk to you about these three guys 
that were a minority in the masses. This takes place in 605 BC, 600 years before Jesus comes to the earth. And their names are Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And then they come with this other guy. His name is Daniel. You've probably heard of him. So there are these four Hebrew boys. And this is 400 years removed from when the people of Israel, they're delivered from Egypt. And so this has been 400 years since they've learned their lesson, right? They got into captivity because they disobeyed God in the first place. They're finally out of captivity, and they've had a pretty good streak. They're, they're free from captivity for 400 years, four centuries. But they begin to slip back gradually to their old behavior. They, they begin to go back to the sin of yesterday. And you know what it lands them? In a heap of trouble, and they're conquered by the greatest nation on earth at that time, Babylon. The Babylonian Empire was led by King Nebuchadnezzar. If you study history, he was probably one of the most successful kings ever when it comes to the span of his empire. And here's what Babylon did. They were smart. Babylon would roll into a country, and they would take the best and the brightest of that country, and they would relocate them back to their home city and back to their country and their nation of Babylon. And so just imagine with me for a moment that the United States is invaded Here's what they would do first. They would come right here to Believer's Church, first service. They would take all of the best and the brightest in all of the community, which is clearly first service. Help me out here. Come on. They would relocate them. And then what they would do is they would identify the youngest and the best and the brightest of the best and the brightest. And King Nebuchadnezzar had a three-year plan. In three years, he wanted to take these four Hebrew boys, and he wanted to indoctrinate them with the ways of Babylon. And so it wasn't enough that they would just do his bidding because they had to, because if they didn't, they would die. He wanted to change their way of thinking, and better yet, he wanted to change their actual identity. And so that's what he began to do. And there comes this moment that I want to read with you this morning. It comes in Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold that was, imagine this, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. A massive image of gold. Many believe that it was an image of him. If you read this, the chapter before, uh, he had a dream, and there was a statue with the head of gold, and some believe that in his own power, he wanted to have a statue that was all gold that symbolized that his empire and his reign would never end. It was an ego trip. It was a moment where he was declaring that I am deity, and I'm a god, and you're supposed to worship me. And here's what happens. They set it up, that's an important phrase, on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, this was a massive plane with plenty of space for thousands and hundreds of thousands of people to be here so that nobody could miss it. And as you can imagine, if, if there's a statue that's 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, it probably took a while to construct. And so there's everyone in the province is hearing about this. Did you hear about the king? Did you hear what he's building on the plain of Dura? It's this massive statue of himself. And I'm sure rumor began to get out about what it would look like. And we'll pick up in just a second, but I thought this was really interesting. This king was so smart. He knew that if he wanted to change a nation, and if he wanted to win the nation of Judah, God's people, over to him, that it wasn't enough that he just told them what to do. And so here's what these guys were in training to do. They were in training to be the representatives in the nation of Judah for Babylon. And he had them on a pretty strict regimen. He said, listen, I want them to eat all of the finest meat from my table. I want them to drink all of the finest wines from my table. I want them to be indoctrinated with our culture. And you know what he did? He realized that I could teach them everything I want, 
and maybe I still wouldn't come out on top, but if I change their identity, then I'm going to win. And so you know what he did? He began to change their names. I, I want to show you something. Babel is the root of Babylon. Babylon, that, that nation actually comes from Babel that you discover in Genesis chapter 11. Now, do you know what Babel actually means if you look at it literally? Translated, it means confusion. It means mixture. It means pride. That's everything that Babylon was built on. Does it sound a little bit familiar to our culture today? As we do this series that's called The New Black, where really our greatest struggle is following trends in a world that lifts them up higher than anything. They're set up so everyone can see them, and we're told to worship them. Have we ever lived in a culture that tells us to worship image more than our culture today? There's a new black that rolls out every season, and every season we're told, no, there, there's no absolute truth. You don't just believe this one way. You can have your beliefs, and I'll have mine, but there's no way that you could declare that your way is the only way. Very similar, and listen to this. Daniel, here's what it meant. This was his Hebrew name. It meant God is my judge. Names in the Bible were very prophetic, and every time that you spoke them over a person, it kind of shaped who they were as a person and their reality. Sometimes they would name someone a name, and it wasn't even a reality yet, but it, they were a sign or a symbol that something in the future was going to happen. And I love this, that Daniel, his name, every time he heard his name called, he was reminded that God is going to have the final say, and that I'm going to live my life in a way that honors God, because one day I'm going to stand before the one true God and give an account of what I've done in this world. God is my judge. You know what they changed his name to? This isn't an accident. King Nebuchadnezzar changed his name to Belteshazzar, which means lady protect the king. Now, remember this, this term Babel, it means confusion. And this isn't what the message is about today, but just for a moment, can we diverge for just a second from the path and just recognize that in our culture, I think confusion is a big theme. Uh, if you're born a man or born a woman, a, a woman, everyone begins to question, well, is that really what God intended? And we begin to even question our gender and our identity. It's no longer, no, God made me in his image as a man or God made me in his image as a woman. We just say it differently and change their identity and begin to make people question. And I don't want to oversimplify the issue, but I also don't want to overcomplicate it. This is a symptom of a problem in our culture. And here's the next one. Hananiah means Jehovah is gracious. Are y'all thankful that we serve a gracious God? You know, you know what they changed it to? Shadrach, which means command of Aku. And Aku was the moon god, and he was a very legalistic, ruthless, harsh god. He imposed all of these religious requirements. And what the king was saying is, listen, you don't serve a gracious god anymore. You serve a new god, and he's a harsh religious god. There's no freedom in our god. There's no grace in our god. It's Aku, the moon god. Now, here's the next one, Mishael. This is really interesting. This is subtle. His name meant who is like God meaning the one true God. And then they changed his name, just tweaked it a little bit, to who is like a coup. There's a pretty blatant message in that name change. They're just saying, look, your praise and your affection is going in the wrong direction. You're going to worship this God. and You can keep worshiping your God, but we're going to add this one into the mix. Mixture, Babylon at its finest. Azariah, here's the last one, means Jehovah is my helper. You know what they changed it to? Abednego, which means slave of Nebo. It also means despicable worm. And if you look into the transliteration, here's what they're saying. God won't rescue you. You are hopelessly bound. Isn't that something that they're in this captive nation, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of miles away from their home. 
they're being indoctrinated every day with how to think and how to look. And now they're even changing their own names so that they can change their identity so that they could be begin the process of conformity. And every day they're hearing, you're a hopeless, despicable worm. You'll never escape. You're a lady. You're not who God says you are. You're who we say you are. And every day, little by little, you have to imagine that the identity that they had in their God was slipping away and they were holding on for dear life. If you ever want a great Bible study, just begin to read through Daniel because there's all these moments where they're confronted with these choices. Do we conform and do we cave into culture or do we hold on to what we know the word of God says is true? Now here they're gathered in this plain of Dura, Daniel chapter three, verse two, and here's what happens. He, the king, then summoned the satraps and the prefects and the governors, the advisors, the treasurers. You just have to imagine, this is every influencer from every corner of culture. The judges and the magistrates, all of the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of this image that he had set up. You know, our culture, if you look on TV, if you listen for just a second, if you look at the people that we elevate in our culture, the pop stars, whoever it might be, it's a setup, man. They, they think a certain way, they talk a certain way, and they're slowly but surely indoctrinating not just the people in our country, but even the church if we're not aware of it. And I think this is really fascinating. Here's the big moment. Daniel chapter 3, verse 4. Then the herald, listen to this, loudly proclaimed. There's something about culture that they don't just suggest it to you. They don't just say, hey, here's a way. No, it's, it's developed into this thing where they are loudly proclaiming. They are screaming at the top of their lungs. This is what you will do or else. And here's what he loudly proclaimed. Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. It's not a suggestion. It's not you could do it or you don't have to. It's you are commanded to do this. Verse 5, as soon as you hear the sound of the horn and the flute and the zither and the lyre and the harp and the pipe and all kinds of music. In other words, any kind of music they used in that culture, it was in the band. They were plugged in and ready to hit the chord, okay? Whenever you hear that, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. In other words, when the beat drops, you drop with it. Bow to the beat. And you know what the big or else was? This is crazy, but as they were constructing this massive statue, 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide, overlaid in gold, here's what was going up right next to it. Historians believe that there was a furnace that was probably one of the biggest furnaces you have ever seen that was being constructed right in the sight of anyone who could see the image. So as they're watching this statue go up day by day, moment by moment, brick by brick, whatever they were using to make it, they're seeing this massive fiery furnace, which is the consequence for anybody who dares not bow to this statue or this image of gold. Can you imagine what that would have felt like? I don't know about you, but there have been some moments in my life where I felt like a minority in the masses when it comes to my relationship with God. Just going, going to school, 10 years removed from high school now, there's so much that has changed even for our students. Uh, they walk through the hallways and they are a minority in the masses if they claim to believe in Jesus. Uh, if they want to be pure when they enter into marriage, if they want to listen to music that's not full of trash, if they want to hold to what the Bible says is true, they are a minority in the masses. They are going the opposite way of culture. They are counter-cultural. And you know what? Here's the lie. And the enemy is great with this lie. He's great at packaging it to make it feel so right. But here's the lie, that bowing is better. That life is better when we bow. You know, I mean, I'm not making a big decision. I mean, I'm just kind of 
caving in in this one little section of my life, this one little corner of my life, no one will probably even notice. It's just easier. It's just better if I bow. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 9, I'm sure most of us will remember this. Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and what happens? Satan, at his weakest moment, finds him in the wilderness, and he begins to tempt him. Y'all remember what he tempted him to do? He said, look, these are the kingdoms of this world. These are all the women. These are all the riches. This is everything an earthly person could ever want. If you bow down and worship me, I'll give you every bit of it. Satan's been trying to get us to bow for a long time. And that's exactly what was happening in Babylon in this moment. And he's getting us to bow, sometimes subtly. I think it's interesting that this was set to the backdrop of music, because I think music has this powerful thing to it. And I don't know that it was something that they did uh, overtly at first. I certainly know that's not what happens in our life. I think sometimes we can get lulled to sleep by the lies of our culture. And you know what? I wanted to just talk for a few minutes about some different ways that we can bow. Because if you're like me, sometimes I just don't even realize that I'm doing it. And the more that I kind of line up my life with God's word, I begin to realize this is an area that I am bowing and I should be doing something far different. Here's, here's the first way. It's with our beliefs. Sometimes we can bow with our beliefs. You know, we live in a culture that's really good at watering down the word of God. It's really good at bending the Bible. It's been happening all the way since the beginning of time in Genesis. Remember what Satan said to Eve? He said, well, did God really mean what he said? about not eating from the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil? Did he really mean what he said? He's just questioning God, calling God's word, his infallible, immutable word into question. And that's what our culture does. Start to question it. They just bend the Bible a little bit. Well, did God really mean what he said when he said that it was a man and a wife for an entire life? Is that really what he meant? Did God really mean what he said when he told us that sex is supposed to be saved for marriage? Did he really mean it? begin to question the word of God, begin to bow our beliefs to the beliefs of culture. It's, it's a dangerous place to be. And I want to just talk to you for a little bit about this mom that I heard about. I thought this was brilliant. Because I think what can happen is we can begin to have this mixing with our culture. We don't fully bow down, but we bow down a little bit. We don't compromise everything, but we compromise a little. And in doing so, we really do compromise everything. There's this mom who had these great kids they were a good family, solid, loved God. And the kids wanted to see this movie, like kids often do. It was a good movie, but it had a few parts, you know what I'm saying? A few things in it that were just a compromise to their character. And so, you know, the sales pitch that we all give to our mom and dad when we're like, Mom, this is a movie, I got to see it. You know, I'll look away. So they had this whole plan, like, I'll look away in this part. We're going to be with our buddy, so we'll, like, look down. And then I'll plug my ears for this part. I'll go to the restroom during this part. I'll refill my popcorn on this, on this part. And uh, the mom was really cool about it. And she was like, you know what? Sure, you can go. And their jaws dropped. They're like, really? This does not sound like the mom I know. And uh, she said, sure, I'll tell you what, even before you go, because they had a few hours to kill, she said, I just want to make you some brownies. And they're like, man, score. Not only is mom letting us go to this horrible movie, she's making us brownies before we go. And so they just go and play, and they get kind of hanging out with their friends, and all of a sudden, they start smelling the aroma, and they're like, oh, mom's made the brownies, and so they're hot, and they're fresh, and they run into the house, and they're like, mom, where's the brownies? She's like, here they are, and she's like, uh, uh, before you eat these brownies, I just got to tell you one thing real quick, real quick. She's like, now, these brownies are going to be amazing. They're going to taste great. They're amazing, but there's one thing you need to know about them. 
there's just a little bit, like just, I'm talking like just a smidge of dog poop in them. <laughs> just a little bit. But listen, before you judge them, like you got to just taste them because you won't even notice the difference. There's just a little bit of dog poop in them. And, and like immediately they're like, mom, gross. I would never eat even a little bit of dog poop. And she's like, no, seriously, it's not a big deal. Like you won't even know the difference. And she's like, no, no, you don't understand. Like this will be amazing. And they're like, no, mama, I don't think we're going to eat that. And she, she says, why? Like, why won't you eat brownies if there's just a little bit of dog poop? And she's like, and, and they tell their mom, because even just a little bit of dog poop mixed in with a good brownie is still a dog poop brownie. Y'all with me? <laughs> It gives a whole new meaning to the term double fudge brownie, if you know what I'm saying. I had to go there. But remember what Babel means? It means mixture. And how many of us have just mixed in a little bit of doggy doo-doo into the mixture of our Christian walk? And man, you know, I just try to think about what the people were thinking. There had to be some Christians in the crowd. There had to be some people aside from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But as far as we can tell from the text, they were the only ones who refused to bow. And I'm sure there were some people that said, I'll bow today, but I'll stand tomorrow. I'm sure there were some people that just said, look, a little bit of mixture won't hurt me. A little bit of doggy doo-doo in my brownies, I won't even taste it. It doesn't even smell any different. I can just continue on with my existence and God will forgive me tomorrow. And they compromised in a way that really stopped them from reaching anybody around them. I'll tell you what, man, God is looking for some people that just say, if God's word says it, then I believe it, and my life is going to be built on it, and I don't care what anybody else says. I refuse to question God's word, and God's word is something he esteems far above anything else, and in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. If God is the word, if Jesus Christ is the word, you better believe we don't want to water it down one bit because that means we're not presenting a real Jesus to the world around us. I'm telling you, man, God wants to do something incredible through a church that can get a hold of that. Now, here's, here's, yeah, we can give God a hand for that. Now, here's the next one. I think a lot of us tend to bow with our media consumption. I don't know about you, but I've just noticed it's not even new, a new generation thing. Like, this has been happening for decades now. You just look at the landscape of our culture and how much media has changed and slowly but surely, just things that would have been in a dark corner alley somewhere three or four decades ago, they're mainstream now. It's just what culture does. I mean, I, I've just been shocked just being reintroduced to the world of students. You have no idea what's coming at them every day. And we wonder why they're having such a hard time following Jesus. And then we don't look at what's on their playlist. But man, I mean, just, I'm not picking on any artist in particular, but just the people that they're listening to, Kesha, Lil Wayne, Beyonce, go down the list. If you just went and looked at their lyrics, uh, they're not just sinful or sexual or full of anger. They're satanic. I mean, they're saying things that you would not believe. And this isn't me bashing a certain artist. I don't want to go off on that trail. But can I just remind you that we're not called to follow just an artist blindly or mindlessly. We're called to follow the word of God. And if what they're singing doesn't line up with the word of God, then it gets deleted off the playlist right away. Isn't that what it's supposed to look like? But we, we can just begin to mindlessly consume media. And I don't think it's a coincidence that King Nebuchadnezzar confronts them with this moment where they have to bow and uses music to do it. Because I think there's something so hypnotic about the beat of our culture 
there's something that's so irresistible when you hear a good beat that you're like, man, I can just throw out all the other stuff and I'll just listen to the music. But you just begin to watch people that have no filter for their faith and they just let anything in. Garbage in, garbage out. There's no way to filter out the filth if you don't have the word of God as your lens to look through. And so I just, I want to challenge you on this. Plato said, give me the music of a nation and I will change a nation's mind. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? Plato knew that thousands of years ago. How about this quote from Jimi Hendrix? He was well known for being involved in satanic things. And a great musician made some bad mistakes and decisions in his life. And here's what he said. I can explain everything better through music. You hypnotize people, and when you get people at their weakest point, you can preach into their subconscious. Is that incredible? Now, I don't think a lot of people even realize that they're doing it. I don't think a lot of people in the industry are intentionally turning people away from God. But as parents, man, we've got to be so mindful of what's going on. Can I just ask you a question? Students, you can plug your ears for a second. Um, I, I spent a year with students the last year, and I love our students. They're incredible. If you didn't know it already, parents, grandparents, people of BC, we have the best students anywhere. They're incredible. They love God. They're pursuing God. They're doing everything they can to live counterculturally and not bow to the beat of culture. But let me just ask you a question. Since when is it just like a rite of passage that when you turn 13 or 14 years old that you get a TV in your room that doesn't have any filters and you can get HBO and Skinamax and whatever you want and it's just left up to your own willpower to say no? Like since when is that a rite of passage? Uh, how about this one? Like, since when does a kid just get their own wing of the house? You know what I'm saying? With zero accountability. I was looking at Miley Cyrus and just kind of looking at the progression. There was this documentary, and one of the biggest mistakes her dad, Billy Ray, said that he made was that when they built this massive mansion during her Hannah Montana years, that she had this entire wing of the house that was just hers. She could come and go as she pleased. She was 15 or 16 years old. And he said, my greatest mistake that I was her friend was that I was her friend and I was not her dad. I mean, I just, can I tell you something, parents? Your, your kids might not love you right now for it, but I'm so thankful that I can look back and there were moments where I would have done it my way and I would have lived without any accountability, but my parents said, no, Joe, you can't have a TV in your room. No, Joe, you can't have your MacBook without any filters in your room with Wi-Fi for free in the house that I pay for and the meals that I put on the table. It's just not how we're going to roll. I don't even know about you, but like I just watch these, these kids and they're like, mom and dad don't love me. And like there's just this attitude and this entitlement that they get. And I love, I love you students. I'm just I told you to plug your ears. <laughs> like, man, they won't let me do what I want. I, all my other friends get to come home at 1 a.m. And like, I got to come home at like 10. And like, can I just tell you, your parents are there for your protection. And sometimes there are things that they know you shouldn't have because it's going to hurt you. And parents, we got to just have a resurgence in the church, especially of parents that just realize I'm your parent. I'm not your best friend. And I'm here to protect you. And when I train up my child in the way that they should go, when they grow old, they won't depart from it. And I'm just thankful that I had some parents that did that. I told you this would be a fun message. So <laughs> now here's, here's the final one. Just take a deep breath. Just go, just say, I want you to say this out loud. Say, I love Joe Jr. Can you just say that <laughs> before I go to this next one? Here, here's, here's the last way that I think we bow. I think it's with our time. I think in our culture, it's an epidemic that we bow with our schedule. You know, um, I've noticed that in America, because we are so 
casually acquainted with God because we're so familiar with faith and it's just a part of our lives. It's almost like just a religious duty for most people. You know, I go to church. It's one of the things I do, like I play baseball or eat apple pie. It's just an American pastime. I don't have a personal relationship with God, but my parents, they kind of get me to church here and there. You know what I, I noticed that, you know, every year around the time flu season rolls around, if you don't want the flu, what do you do? You get a flu shot, right? And what's the flu shot all about? Well, they expose you to just a small amount of the virus so that your body can build an immunity when the real virus comes along, right? It's pretty genius. And can I just make this statement to you that a little bit of God is dangerous? I, I've watched a lot of parents with their kids, kids that grew up with me that were great parents, great kids, that they just exposed their kids to just a little bit of God. You know what began to happen? They got just kind of familiar with church. It's kind of just something we do when we get around to it. There was no guarantee if they were going to be in church every Sunday, if they were going to be in the student group. And they were just exposed to a little bit of God. And you know what happened? They became immune to the things of God. Had no effect on them. When they did come into church, they didn't really make a connection with God because their parents had never made that the priority in their lives. And here's how we can know if we have it as the priority in our lives. If you can ask this question of yourself, when my kids wake up on a, on a weekday and I have a baseball schedule or I have a football schedule or a dance schedule, do they ever have a question in their mind if we're going to miss that dance schedule? Is there ever a question in my mind, will I be missing practice tonight? Will I be missing rehearsal? For sure not the game, right? But how many of us in America have kids who wake up every Sunday morning and they're not quite sure if they're going to church or not? Will mom and dad want us to get up today? We had a late night last night. There are all kinds of reasons why we bow to the beat and the rhythm of our culture and putting our schedules first. You know, I've noticed this, that parents leave, they lead kid-centered lives. You know, and they, they feel bad about it. There's this guilt trip that's put on parents. If you don't have your kids enrolled in four and five and six different sports year-round, and you know what? Can I just break it to you? Your kids are probably not LeBron James. Like, you, we might have a few prodigies, but like, I've watched a lot of people, they just spend all of their time in the early years of their kids' development, sending them to baseball fields and basketball courts and dance studios, and they grow up without the right priorities in place, and they're far from God. You know what the Catholic Church says? That if you give us your children in the first seven years, we'll give you back men and women. And they understand that there's this important moment at the beginning of a kid's life where they're forming the foundation of their faith, and they're beginning to think the right way, and there's something so powerful about that. You know, I just, the last time I checked, the enemy, remember, he, he tempts us, and he says, it's better to bow. But I just remember in Psalm, this is something I'd hear all the time, better is one day in your courts, better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere. You know, I, I mean, this is a great one. I, my heart leaped for joy, Psalm 122, when they said to me, let's go to the house of our God. Isn't that incredible? How about, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's better to be in God's house. And when we make that the priority, can I just tell you something? A lot of times you'd be surprised what coaches or teachers would let you do if you just talked to them. I played for the Howland Athletic Club, the Mets, 1996. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Undefeated. Played right field, never did anything. But uh, you know what? My parents, we had a lot of practices, and some of them were on Wednesday nights. And my parents just said, Joe, in our house, we go to church. And so we're going to let you pick a sport this year. If you want to do baseball, that's awesome. But we're going to just have a nice conversation with your coach and just tell him you're going to duck out of practice a half an hour early on Wednesday night. 
And if he says no, we'll find something else. We'll play baseball with you in the yard. We'll do something, but you won't be playing for the team. And I was like, okay. I mean, it, was, it didn't even matter to me because we had so many cool things going on at student group. I was just like, that's fine. And so we went there, had a talk with him, and he was great. We just prayed that God would soften his heart. And he was like, sure, duck out 30 minutes on Wednesday. I'm just telling you, like, some of you will have to make a tough decision. Some of you might not even know that if you just presented it to the coach, there might be some cool things that he would do. But I just make this statement to you, and we're going to kind of draw to a close, that when we get into God's house, then God gets into our house. When, when we make it a priority that we're going to get here every weekend, when we make it a priority that nothing else bumps this off the totem pole, this is at the highest level of priority, God begins to invade our house and everything begins to change. Now, let's finish this story up. This is powerful. So, uh, real quick before we do that, I want to read you some stats about the house. I almost forgot about this. This is incredible. If mom and dad went to church growing up, then 72% of our kids will attend as adults. Do you know that? How about this? If only dad attends, 57% will attend as adults. If only mom attends, 15%. If neither attend, 6%. And how about this? We live in a culture where divorce is a pretty big deal and marriages don't really go the distance. If the couple was in church just last week, their divorce rate dropped by 27%. There's something about it. When we get in God's house, God gets in our house. Powerful. Those are all on the app. If you want to download the Believer's Church app, you can get the message notes and you can share those with your friends and all that. Let's get back to the story as we finish. Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. Here's that song we were singing. I love it. Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. We, in other words, we don't bow to the same things that you bow to. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand. Let me make this statement to you that Christians are called to stand when everyone else is bowing, and we're called to bow when everyone else is standing. We're called to stand in defiance of what culture worships. We're called to bow in reliance of the God we worship. There's something so amazing when we can just say, hey, even though everybody else in my school, even though everybody else at the job, even though everybody else at my family is bowing down to the beat of culture, that's not for me. I'm going to bow to the beat of what God is calling me to do. Now, here, here's where it changes. It turns a little bit. Daniel chapter 3, verse 19 then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I love this. This phrase says a lot. His attitude toward them changed. Isn't that crazy? You ever been in a situation where all of a sudden it's unveiled to people that you're not going to bow the way everybody else bows? You're going to stand for what God stands for? Ever had somebody's attitude change towards you? Now, that's a predicament because we're called to love and honor them, but we're still called to stand. And so here's what happens. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. Now, fire's pretty hot to begin with. I really don't know how to comprehend like seven times hotter. But can I tell you something? Whenever we stand, when other people are bowing, culture's going to turn up the heat. They're going to turn up the heat, and they're going to pressure you to do it all the more. I'm just reminded of Louis Giglio, great guy, reaching a lot of students. Uh, in 2013, he was invited uh, to pray at the, uh, the inauguration, the benediction, and somebody unearthed from 15 years ago that he preached a message, God forbid, on what the Bible says about homosexuality, and he had to bow out. And I thought it was a really respectable thing that he did because he didn't want to become the uh, primary focus of that moment. But just the fact that he had to do that in our culture tells you everything. 
they're going to turn up the heat when you refuse to bow to culture. And here's, here's where it kind of ends. He commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, throw them into the blazing furnace. And then Daniel 3.24, they're in the furnace, and get this, a few of his soldiers die when they're trying to throw him into the furnace. That's how hot it is. So the three of them get dropped in, and then King Nebuchadnezzar starts looking. You have to remember, there's this massive crowd of people that are watching because he wants to make an example out of them. And here's what happens. King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? You got to know this, that there are going to be some moments when culture turns up the heat and everybody's eyes are going to be on you. But you know what? You're going to have them seeing double because they thought you were going through it alone, but God was with you the whole time. And you know what? They're going to look at what's happening in that fire and they're going to think it's the very thing that's going to destroy you. But you know what? It's the thing that's going to refine you. And it's the thing that's going to make you look more like Jesus. It's going to burn away everything that didn't belong to begin with. And you know what? They came out of that furnace and they didn't even smell like smoke. And listen to how this ends. Daniel 3.28. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Isn't that crazy? Who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. Then the king promoted them. Promoted them in the province of Babylon. Now here's where we're going to really end. Listen. We will either bow to the beat of culture or we will bow to the beat of God's heart. There's something about living to the beat of God's heart, what his heart really breaks for, what it really beats for. And can I tell you something? It's people. It's the people who are mindlessly going in the wrong direction. People who don't know the difference. We're not called to judge them. We're called to love them. And that's how we're going to reach them. And Acts 13, 22 says, I've searched the land. This is one of my favorite scriptures. And I found this David, son of Jesse. He's a man whose heart beats to my heart, a man who will do what I tell him. You know what God's looking for? Just somebody who will do what he says. Just no matter what anybody says or what anybody does. How about 2 Chronicles 16, 9? The Lord's eyes scan the whole world. In other words, he's looking ferociously, looking for somebody. They scan the whole world to strengthen those who are committed to him with all their hearts. And here's the last one, Psalm 51, 10. It was written after David made the worst decision of his life. The lowest moment he could have possibly had, had an affair and then murdered the husband of the woman he had an affair with. Psalm 51.10, he's in a personal moment with God. Here's what he says. God, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit or a steadfast spirit within me. I just ask everyone to bow your heads and close your eyes in this moment. This is just a moment between you and God. I love this church because here's our goal we don't want you to just be a fan or a friend of Jesus. We want you to be a follower of Jesus. He is your friend, but there's something deeper that he's calling you to. Might even be calling you away from some things, to leave some things behind. Some of you have a fiery furnace in your future. You're headed there, and you just need to know that you don't need to be afraid. God will be with you. You'll have the people around you seeing double. And you're going to come out a different person, but you still got to go in. You still have to refuse to bow. And I want to challenge you to do it graciously and with God's love, and you can do it. But some of you just have to make that decision this morning. I'm not going to bow to the beat of culture anymore. I'm going to bow to the beat of God's heart. I want you just to repeat this after me. If you mean it, let's just have a moment with God. Say, dear God, thank you that Jesus loved me enough to hang on a cross take my sins away. Make me new. 
so that I could know you. And I refuse to look like the world around me anymore. I want to be like you. So I pray that you'd show me anything in my life that's not fully committed to you. You have my heart. Let me be synced to your heartbeat. In Jesus' name. Everyone's heads are still bowed, eyes are still closed. I just want to invite one more person that might be in the room this morning. If maybe this is all new to you and you're like, man, I would love to know this God that you're talking about because I was never exposed to this kind of a God. I have all these things I've heard about God or Jesus and I don't think I've ever heard about this. Can I just tell you something? God loves you so much, so much so that he sent his son to die for you. John 3, 16, everybody knows it. Most people don't understand it, that God so loved the world that he gave us his son to die for us, that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish. God's not willing that one person would die and be separated from him in a place called hell. He wants you to spend eternity with him in heaven. And better than that, he wants to start a relationship with you and be involved in your everyday life. And so I just want to invite you, if that's you and you're like, I've never made it personal with God, but I'm ready. Can you pray this with me? Say, dear God, and everyone help me out. Dear God, thank you for Jesus. I accept the free gift of salvation that he gave to me. Come into my life, change my life, make me a new person. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Connecting Place podcast. For more information about Believers Church, visit believers.cc.